Hello and welcome to the Slow Home Podcast. This is the podcast all about slow living in a fast-paced world. My name is Brooke McCallery. My name is Ben McCallery. Welcome to episode three of our season four podcast series. In today's episode, we have the lovely Georgie. We do. And you talk to Georgie about a whole host of different things. Well, she comes to the table with a with a problem that I think you relate to quite mm-hmm. a lot. Mm-hmm. I do. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. Essentially, Georgie is overwhelmed by the scope of the work that needs to be done to improve our environment. So mm-hmm. the way Georgie described it is that she is feeling the tension between wanting to do more and find better solutions for living sustainably and, and um, ethically know, and yeah, and, and yeah. fighting the vastness of climate change and all of that sort of stuff mm-hmm. um, while also maintaining a slower life, you know, a more mindful pace of life. While also, you know, having all this information and reading more and more about Correct. what you can do. Yeah. So, I mean, and where Georgie's coming from specifically is that she has made huge strides in her household. Yep. You know, we talk about the changes that she's made and what sort of drove those changes. And she's come to this point now where a lot of people on similar journeys will find themselves. You've made the changes that you can make. And now you're wondering what's the next step? What is what is the next thing yep. that I can put my energy into that is going to have a bigger impact? Yep. And that's essentially the, the big question that she's asking is what are the best things that we can do to make a real difference? Uh, and I think that that's a, a phenomenally yeah, it's huge. Uh, insightful question yeah. too to ask because I think Georgie already recognizes that individuals acting alone will not make the changes that need to be made in order to, to shift things. I think that that's where it begins, but we can't individually shoulder all the responsibility. So we have a conversation about community uh, and the importance of banding together and coming together as a collective, uh, but also digging more deeply into um, what it is that Georgie feels kind of propelled Drawn towards. to. Yeah, yeah. and the, change, the, the opportunities that she has in the work that she does and the places she finds herself in the community, what can she do there to begin? Mm-hmm. And it's a really uplifting conversation, I think, because it also releases us from the requirement to feel like we need to do it all alone uh, and we need to do it all perfectly. So there, there's that. But we also do talk about some of the other changes that you can make. And I know that Georgie said she felt like she was really on top of stuff in her own household, but there was a handful of kind of practical quick fire suggestions that I make towards the end of our conversation that I think might be relevant maybe to Georgie, um, but also to, to lots of other people. And it's about maybe thinking that layer deeper into the, the actions that we can take in our own homes and the conversations we have and, yeah. you know. And you've included those um, tips, if you like, over on the show notes to this episode. I have, yeah. yeah. There's a pretty, a pretty substantial list with links and, and things like that for anyone who's looking to take those individual changes that step further that I hope will be relevant. Slowyourhome.com slash season four for those resources. Enjoy the first half of this chat with the lovely Georgie. Georgie, hello. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm really well. All the better for speaking to you. Um, now, I'm really, really excited to dig into the email that you sent to me um, a few weeks ago because I think it really gets to the heart of not only the eco-anxiety um, 
that a lot of us are feeling right now. And I think that that's a pretty common thing, particularly with listeners of the podcast. But you also asked um, a second kind of question about what bigger, impactful, more impactful things we can do outside our own homes as well. Um, because I, th- I guess in the first part of your email, it seems to to show me that you've got a lot of the, the home-based changes on lockdown. Like you've spent the last yeah. couple of years making changes to the way you live. So what do some of those shifts look like? Two years ago when I was on holiday, I actually read um, Slow when it first came out. And that I feel like really sparked my changes. And so I do a lot of cooking from scratch, a lot of preserving. I've moved to a new house where I've got a garden. So I you know, try and grow things um, with my three and a half year old daughter. We do a lot of time in the garden, which she enjoys. Um, I ride my bike to work every day. Um, so there's some of the bigger changes as well as trying to maybe at work have some of that impact as well, you know, make sure that there's a compost bin and and some plastics. You're already really taking control of your choices and making those changes that sort of feel like they're in your sphere of of influence, you know, and I love that you're including your daughter in that. I think that's one of the most important jobs we've got as parents is to raise our children with an awareness of these things, because I think if if that's natural to them, if that's just what life looks like, to go and check on the broccoli and to understand, um, you know, that in order for things to grow, we need to care for them and to sort of see the wonder and the magic in that. I think we're raising them with a set of skills that some of our generation maybe just didn't have and we've had to develop Mm. as adults. So I think that's really Mm. important. Um, How does she react to that? Well, she gets really excited about going and looking in the garden and, you know, um, picking peas off the um, bush and things like that. And I feel like she's, she's almost four Children are obviously quite black and white about things, but like, you know, she'd be like, oh, you know, we don't have straws because the turtles eat them or, you know, we don't don't like getting the balloons because jellyfish, like, they look like jellyfish in the sea. So like the very basic understanding, I'm not so much dictating things to her so, as much anymore. She's getting a bit more of an understanding as to why we're doing those things, which is really nice. It is nice. And I think it taps into the default curiosity that kids have. Have. You know, she, I imagine she's at that age where she asks why a lot, you know, why things yes. are like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I hear you. <laughs> um, and I think that as, as much as sometimes it gets kind of a lot, developing that and that curiosity and championing it is also sort of tied to what you're doing because it allows her to then see the world as full of possibilities and solutions and, and you know, creative ideas to to some of the bigger problems that we're having. And I think if we've got a a generation of kids coming through with curiosity that hasn't been polited out of them, I think that's a really beautiful and and very hope-filled thing. You know, we do live in a bit of an echo chamber sometimes. I'm surrounded by friends who have similar values to me. Um, But then, you know, seeing her interact with some children whose parents I don't know as well, just seeing the the difference in the way that, that we parent around those things and in terms of, you know, um, lots of presents and toys that go into landfill or, yep. you know, packaging and, and things like that. And so this is part of the reason that I'm like, oh, I can impart what I, you know, believe to be valid to my daughter, but it's very hard in the larger landscape mm. um, to have an impact other than on, on her. And it is. And I think that maybe as she gets older, depending on what schooling situation um, you choose, it does get to a point, particularly I found with my kids um, sort of around the ages that they are now and probably a little bit younger where that, and I, I think it probably will happen again as they're teenagers, that sort of peer pressure of what everyone else is doing um, becomes quite obvious and quite apparent. And I think that teaching your kids how to 
stand strong in what they believe rather than what you believe. And that's why I liked when you said, I'm not dictating things to her. She's coming to these ideas herself. She's going to defend her ideas a lot more readily than if it's just, well, mum just told me that I'm not allowed to. Um, you know, and I think that that's really a powerful position to give her. Now, from your email, I also got a sense that while you feel quite fulfilled in the changes that you're making, I also got a sense that you felt like they weren't enough. Is that is that sort of the tension? Like it's been at the forefront of my mind for the last month. Um, I work for a, um, a theatre company and we're making a piece of documentary theatre at the moment that um, we're asking people from the ages of 8 to 100 um, what big mysteries they'd like the answer to. And one of the questions that has come up with, what will the future look like in a thousand years' time? And then we go and ask these same people what their version of the answer is. It's, it's interesting, when you're asking adults, it's quite bleak, you know, they bring up the climate crisis. They're not sure if there is going to be a world that mm. we recognise in a thousand years' time. But when you talk to like eight, nine, ten-year-olds, they're pretty optimistic. They, they're aware of, the, of climate change and some of the issues that we um, are facing, but they're like, but we'll find a solution and it'll all be fine. But the people that I kind of felt sorriest for when talking to um, was teenagers, secondary school students, because they're being told that they're the last generation. I've been thinking a lot about, you know, if I was to be giving advice to these secondary school students who are being told they need to find a way to change the world, what impact can I have on them to be able to make them feel like they're ready to face the changes that they need to make? Really feels a lot like passing the buck, doesn't it? You know, absolutely. <laughs> like it really does. Like they have power in their voices, but they are not the ones making decisions. They are not prime ministers. They are not members of parliament yet. They're not CEOs of companies who do have the opportunity to make these changes. And yet they're the ones who feel like their future is being stolen. And I, I think it's devastating. Both from their point of view, but also from mine, it's like, oh, well, we, we kind of made to feel like it's it's a systematic change. You know, you um, think about the documentary 2040, yeah. where a, a lot of the changes can be people powered, but they are also, it's governments and prime ministers and, and people who have the ability to make these big sweeping changes yeah. who, are, who are not really taking those steps. And so it, it's very hard as an individual to know what I can do to have a, a large impact than just what I'm doing within my own home. Yeah, that's a really important distinction to make because you've got pride and fulfilment in the changes that you've made. And I think that's important because otherwise it can feel like, oh, why bother? You know, these changes that I'm making aren't enough. And we're talking about two different things. We're talking about the sphere of influence that we have, you know, our home and maybe our workplace, maybe our community to a certain extent. Um, and then there are the systems that we are a part of but don't necessarily have a say in how they are run and what decisions are made on our behalf, you know. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned 2040 actually because I think that one of the missing ingredients in a lot of these conversations is hope. And I think that 2040 did a really beautiful job of bringing hope to the conversation, you know, and, and not just blind optimism. They brought hope and they brought solutions. So since the film has been released, I know that they have started at least two programs that aren't government funded, that are actually fully crowdfunded. So the, the seaweed um, program, so that has been fully funded. They've raised more than $350,000 to start two trial programs in Tasmania and they're looking to further extend that program to a few other areas uh, in Tassie, I think. And then they've also launched Carbonate, which is a program that people, individuals oh, can... I have heard of that. Yeah, yes, it's, yeah. I'm really impressed with it um, and it's something that we support because 
essentially, it's it's working directly with farmers to increase the carbon content of soil from 1% where it currently is to 8%. And by doing that, they're sequestering a certain amount of carbon in the soil. Uh, mm. It's through regenerative farming. And that's what I loved about 2040 documentary and their whole sort of perspective was that, it, yes, that we need hope, but we also need solutions. And they're mm. not waiting for the government to mm. fund any of these. Um, so definitely I think that's one of the first things I would recommend. If you're in a financial position to do so, looking at maybe finding one of those programs or a startup that really speaks to an issue that just kind of resonated with you and looking at how you can support that, mm. particularly one that's on the ground making these important kind of shifts in one specific way. Um, so is, is there sort of an element of this bigger problem that resonates with you specifically? I think uh, particularly around um, yeah, like food, where it comes from, food miles, ha- um, how things are prepared, how things are prepackaged. Um, to me, it's important, you know, trying to <clears throat> support local farmers, that kind of thing. Yep. So I think something like Carbonate, which is in encouraging farmers to uh, regenerate the soil, which I think is probably going to produce better produce for us anyway, yeah. um, would definitely be something that I would be interested in supporting. Finding something, doing some research and, and sort of highlighting one area. And I mean, understanding the pain that is acknowledging that we can't do it all. We can't support mm. everyone. We can't, yeah. um, you know, we can't champion every cause. But if everyone listening chose one cause, one element of this current, you know, this current sort of huge problem that we're facing and started to support just one area of that, I think it would make an enormous difference mm. um, to those organisations. Mm. Um, so you said you, you'd made changes in your workplace as well. Um, what about community options sort of for, for making changes in the community? Does your community offer programs and, and services that are sort of in alignment with the changes you want to see? I haven't found it. So I, I, since... Um watching 2040 and, and also having these conversations with kids, I've been trying to look into like, what can I be doing with my community? I've been looking into like, you know, community gardens that are around, mm-hmm. um, other programs like that. But I, I don't feel like there's anything in my particular area that really aligns with what I f- feel okay. like needs to happen. And so I've been looking into, you know, if, if I was to start something like that, what would it look like? Mm. Um, what, what would I need, you know, at the very basic level, you know, just the kernel of the ideas, but, um, it is also, you know, a, a big thing to try and start something yourself. And um, absolutely, uh, a friend of mine always he he works for like non for profits and is a bugbear of his of people like trying to start something when something already exists that does yes. it sort of you know spreads the resources thin. So trying to make sure that I'm not uh, doing something that already exists within my community as well. That's and that's really important. Um, I think to either operate in service of a program or a service that already exists before deciding that you're the person with the solution. You may well be, and it may well be something that you find is missing in the community and that that's sort of one of your call to arms. Um, but, yeah, I, I like that you're taking some time. That was probably another thing I was going to suggest doing is doing a little research and contacting your local council and seeing what what services and programs already exist um, before making a decision of A, what to get involved in and B, whether or not to, to start something else. So when you think about those solutions, what what do you have in mind? I mean, you mentioned community gardens and I know that food is probably the thing that you highlighted immediately. Uh, would it be related to that? 
I think so. And um, I think um, particularly because I feel like this call to arms has come from speaking to young people and um, mm. the theatre company I work for produces work for young people so um, passionate about. And so thinking about, you know, if it's an education program that aligns with school curriculums or, mm-hmm. or something along those lines that's teaching uh, young people the, the skills that they might need. Um, and I've also been thinking about that that difference in the eight, nine, ten-year-olds, the optimism that they have um, compared to once you get to a teenager where mm. you feel like you've got the weight of the world on your on your shoulders and like what, what causes that change and how can we arm those kids before they get to that point that they feel too bogged down. So um, I, I, I've done a lot of creative writing, so think about is there like um, a handbook that you can write for that kind of age group um, before they feel like they're too bogged down with like really mm. simple steps um, uh, that they can start with something small mm. within their home and then, you know, start looking at changes within their school and, their, and the rest of their friendship group and, and um, the community at large. But it, that's obviously a um, project that might, might take some time to, to, um, to, get, to whip up. Yeah. <laughs> But it's kind of something that I've been thinking about. I love, I mean, I love that. And that's obviously something where a number of your values are mm. inter, interlocking, you know, and intersecting. Mm. And mm. I think that you spoke with so much energy when you were just talking then. Um, and I think it's mm. important to, to pay attention to those um, sort of intuitive responses and mm. reactions when we feel like, yes, it's a big undertaking or, or yes, I'm not 100% sure of how I will go about it, but there's something there. So mm. I think that that's really wonderful as well. I was listening the other day to your interview with, um, is it Katie Patrick, is that her yes. name? Yes. Yes, and her talking about, you know, optimism and that, you know, all the, the negative news can stop us from doing and, you know, from feeling like we can actually take actions. It's, yeah. you know, you kind of lose momentum to do anything and like thinking about the idea of trying to capture the optimism that these young people have before they get too bogged down in the bad news stories that we feed to them. It's been interesting. That conversation has come up a lot in this season's um, this season's conversations, and I think because there we we fundamentally know that optimism and hope and imagination and creativity are required to make these shifts, whatever they are. I mean, we're talking about climate crisis, but even if you're looking at an individual shift that you you need to make, I think that that hope and optimism and action kind of go hand in hand. So being able to create something that allows children to develop that hope and optimism and pair it with action before they get weighed down is really Mm. beautiful and makes a huge Mm. amount of sense as well. Even letting kids know that their voice has power is important. Mm. You know, my my daughter was really floored to realise that she could send a letter to the Prime Minister, Mm. you know, to his office, and that there is a chance that someone in his office would read it and and read her words. And I think that in a conversation I had with Erin Rhodes a couple of years ago, she um, had written a letter to an, a company that was creating this plastic packaging that had a, a much more sustainable alternative that they just weren't using. So she sent the packaging back with a letter explaining what the what the alternative was. And she had since heard, I could be butchering this story, but essentially <laughs> that if if someone writes a letter, and it, a letter as opposed to an email, mm-hmm. um, r- takes the time to write a letter, then they need to to discuss this suggestion because mm. they will take consumers' concerns um, to at least to a certain point mm. seriously and pay attention to them. And I've, I've never forgotten that. I always sort of mm. thought that writing a letter was this kind of quaint idea that grannies did to the local newspaper, <laughs> but there is power in it. 
I remember um, uh, I used to work for a um, children's festival and one of the programs that they run, I can't remember who was running it, was an idea that um, kids could come in and tell the facilitators what, you know, what issue they were really concerned about, what burning um, desire they had to, to change. Um, and then they could write a letter to whoever in the government or in their local council would be responsible for that issue. And then the facilitators would help them find the right person to send that letter to. And I feel like that's such a, a beautiful way to show kids like, oh, the things that you care about, there is there is someone yes. that you can talk to about that and they can, yeah, they can get your words, they can read it and it might lead to change. Yeah, that's. I think that's really beautiful. Um, and I wonder whether some of the teenagers who are feeling so kind of crippled with the anxiety mm. of what, what's to come, I wonder if we were able to, to get the kids who are younger than that coming through mm. at least with an understanding that their voice is important. Mm. Uh, you know, maybe some of that anxiety would be not removed but there is there is a step that they can take. There is action mm. that they can take, yeah. and um, that might be helpful. A couple of things maybe that you could do if you're you're still looking around to see what what if any kind of big program or or idea or you would like to deliver. Uh, first, I think researching what's already around would be a great step, so that you don't feel like you're kind of like you said, reinventing the wheel. Um, but then if there's not, sort of doing the exercise that Katie Patrick spoke about, which was getting your daydreaming hat on mm. and thinking about maybe five years in the future and just seeing what solutions are in play. What does your local community look like as a result of those? Mm. Um, you know, how has it impacted your life? How has it impacted the people who are involved in that program and in what ways? And then kind of look at what does that actually look like? And then look at this this beautiful sort of daydream solution that you've come up with and accept that it's a possibility by reverse engineering to where you are today, you know, to where to what that first step would be. Uh, and I loved the way she did that because, I mean, it's nice to, to daydream, but it's also only going to be a daydream unless we figure out what the first mm. step is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so that could be something sort of to, to journal on or to, to think on mm. over the, the coming weeks. Um, and then I sort of had a, a list of of other changes that you may have already made, um, but I know that there'll be a lot of people listening um, who who may not. And they're things that I have really only done relatively recently myself, but I feel like if we're talking systems, if we're talking corporate kind of overlords, these are things that actually <laughs> that actually make a difference because it's going to affect the bottom line of some of these companies. So we looked at the bank that we were with, and their investment policies, and we're really disturbed to find out what kind of industries <laughs> they were investing in. So we've completely removed mm. our, our money from banks that are investing in fossil fuel industry, for example, um, and gone with a bank that doesn't, a bank you know whose investment aligns with um, our values a little more closely. And that, I, think, I feel like that helps because when we closed our accounts with the previous bank, we got to tell them why. We told them flat out yeah. why mm. and... I think that if a number of people make those same statements, that's going to be powerful because money talks, you mm. know. Um, so I will include a link in the show notes um, and send it to you as well. But there is a, a blog post on One Million Women um, website that talks through this. And we did the same thing with our superannuation last year as well, sort of removing our money from a fund that delivered the same returns uh, mm. but was mm. investing in the Adani mine. So that was a big that no, uh, and, and, you know, remove that. So that's sort of a simple thing that I probably should have thought about previously, 
but um, it felt quite powerful. Um, the other thing that I did is a, like a carbon calculator, but it was it seemed to be one of the most realistic ones that basically calculated my entire family's carbon footprint for the year. And it was it's scary. I mean, even with all the efforts that we make, it adds up. I wanted to find out what I needed to do to offset that. So we've started, Ben and I have started working with a couple of tree planting organizations to start to try and offset some of those, those emissions that we personally have, have created. Um, and we, that's something that we'll be doing annually as well. And we've decided that we won't be flying very much anymore because, you know, I think that that's one huge step that a lot of us can make is to reduce the number of flights ideally to zero. Um, if ever we do need to fly, that's something that we would be offsetting, not through the through the organisation, not through the like through Qantas or anything, but yeah, yeah, the one that you do when you're booking. Exactly, yeah. um, I yeah. will always I would always do that anyway, but doing one that you know that, that probably has a little more meat on on the bones. The material difference is significant, I think, to the land that those trees are planted on and to the organisations that are doing the work, but. It also, again, sort of made me feel like, yes, there are things that I can do as an individual that I don't need to wait for our government to act. I don't need to wait in order to to have this sort of mass sort of show of, of agreement for us to, to do that. I think taking those choices and, and putting them to play for ourselves is, is really important. Uh, I mean, do you, do you do things like write letters or... Have you ever called your local supermarket or, you know, spoken to council or emailed the local pub or anything like that to, to speak about specific changes? No, I haven't, but it is something I have been thinking about because it does, you know, it does seem like, oh, one letter, what's it going to do? Mm. But then you do realise like, well, if it's my one letter and then 10 other people's letters that are all saying the same thing or 100 people's letters that are all saying the yeah. same thing, well, unless we all individually do that, they're not going to know that that's something that's on our mind. So it's definitely something that I am going to be pursuing. Yeah. And I think even just giving ourselves sort of 15 minutes a week of doing something, you know, writing an email, making a phone call um, and leaving a message with your local MP or whatever it is, if just 15 minutes a week could, could make a huge difference. And um, I've sort of made it a goal of mine recently to just take one action every week beyond what I had previously been doing. So I've written, um, I've written emails, and I know they should be letters, but I have written emails to like the local MP for this area, um, but also a minister for the environment. Uh, and again, who's to say that the number of emails that they get that are sort of sharing similar concerns doesn't have an impact, maybe not right away and maybe not in a big showy way that we would all like to see. I probably have my idealistic hat on here, but if you're talking about people who are representing us in government, that's their job to represent Mm. us. And we are not only the people who are in agreement with what they're doing currently, we, the people, have a huge range of beliefs Mm. and opinions. So I think not just talking about it, actually voicing that opinion. So I mean, I think there's a there's a lot of ideas there, and you strike me as someone who is not who is not short of ideas, which I love. Like I've I've loved speaking to you, and I love <laughs> hearing how you're taking inspiration from what um, you're doing in your work and the people you come across and the answers that they give, and you're using that to motivate you and inspire you. Um, has there been anything sort of that has piqued your interest? Definitely looking to carbonate more. Yep. And um, but also just thinking about I think, you know, we think about our local community and, and being like, is that a big enough scale? But 
you know, I started with home and then workplace and then the next step is community yep. and, and finding, I think it's both, you know, trying to have an impact, but also then just finding like-minded people as yes. well. And the more people that you gather around, the more momentum you feel that you can gain to do something even bigger and bigger and bigger. So Exactly. Yeah. And I think there is a certain magic that happens when you join forces with like-minded people, even if it's one of your values that you share, you know, and you're, you're enthusiastic about that. Um, something really powerful happens. So, um, yeah, I definitely encourage you to sort of explore what that might look like in your community, um, as well as maybe uh, brainstorm some of those smaller actions that you could take, like writing a letter or sending an email or even just signing a petition or starting a petition on something or, you know, sending an email to the local coffee shop about starting a bring your own mug kind of thing or whatever it is um, and just brainstorm all of those ideas uh, and then give yourself 15 minutes a, a week to take action on one of them you know they don't all need to be these huge all-encompassing um, programs or projects sometimes just sending an email or, or making a phone call can help too um, thank you for, for being part of the podcast and sharing and being honest and, and also sharing your inspiration. I really enjoyed talking to you about Oh, no, thank you. No, it's been wonderful. I'm really looking forward to hearing what um, everyone else's questions were and, and um, the chats that you've had with everyone else too. So after speaking with Georgie, mm-hmm. there was someone who I had in mind that I really wanted to bring in for this second half of the episode uh, because I think that she very publicly grapples with basically the same, same issues yeah. that, that Georgie and yeah. so many of us grapple with. Um, and it's Sarah Wilson, who I've had on the show before and who I admire enormously. And when I mentioned this to, to Georgie at the end of our conversation, after we'd recorded, she told me that... Oh, do you give away the... Only because I already knew. I did know this oh, one right. had been okay. lined up. Yeah. Um, typically not because, yeah. you know, yeah, it doesn't yeah. always work, work out. that way. But I mentioned it and I said, I'm, I'm hopeful that it will be Sarah Wilson. And Georgie said that Sarah's books really kind of began her journey towards shifting and, and it feels like a really beautiful full circle moment. Yeah. So that was really oh, nice. It's very nice when that, that sort of stuff happens for yeah. sure. Yeah. Now, what I will say before we get into my chat with Sarah is we did have some technical issues with the old skype Rooney. Yeah. The end of the the podcast is very abrupt. Abrupt, yeah. <laughs> that is not me cutting Sarah off. That is Skype cutting Sarah and I off from yes. each other. Yeah. Now, you know, Sarah and I really dive headfirst into the, um, you know, the, the conversation around not needing to shoulder all of this responsibility individually. Yeah. And we speak a lot about connection and coming together as a, a collective of humanity and that's how we are going to to shift the needle on, mm. on these big, big issues, um, having conversations, treating each other like humans. And I think that that is, as Georgie, you know, shifts her focus more outward into the community, it's not being afraid to have difficult conversations with people, but trying to not view the world through the internet's version of us versus them or right versus wrong, no one is is that shade of black or white. There are so many multitudes of grey. I feel like that's where the argument is at the moment, I mean, the global argument about climate change. Yeah, it's been politicised and it's yeah. either you're with us or you're against us. You're yeah. doing enough or you're not. Yeah. And anyone can break any argument down to, to that 
that duality yeah. until you find yourself in it. And then you're like, oh, there is a whole multitude of greys in That's here. That's it. Yeah. So I think it's, you know, I, I really, I hope that Georgie relates to the conversation Sarah and I have and get something out of it. I know I certainly did and that everyone listening does because I think that that is a huge part of the conversation. Oh, and by the way, uh, if you listen to the podcast with your kids around, a couple of adult words make their way into this part of the conversation. So just wanted to give you a heads up. Sarah, hello. How are you? Hey, Brooke. It's I'm really good, and it's really good to talk to you again. It's so good to talk to you. It's always it's always a good day in my calendar when I know I get to have a chat with you. <laughs> Me um, too. Now I want to dive straight into this because my conversation with Georgie was really juicy, first of all, and really I think it's a really relevant one to a lot of people. You know what she's found is probably something that a lot of us find, you know, she's coming up against this same tension that we eventually face when the more we learn about anything, you know, the more we see that there is to do. And then the more we do, the more we learn. And it just, it's like this cycle of ever growing proportions that can be really uncomfortable and challenging. You add to that, that you can't unsee all the stuff that you've learned. Exactly. You know what I mean? Like, exactly. It's not like you can sort of compartmentalise it. Once you've learned it, it's with you and you're on board. You can't drop it, you know. So I'm feeling Georgie's pain. Yeah. Providing this is something that you have come up against over time with, you know, a variety of different areas of life, how do you manage that tension? Yeah. It's a massive issue and I think that's one of the first things that that, that needs to be recognised is that this would render anyone overwhelmed. Yep. And I've been researching this for my next book. Look, I think the first thing we've got to understand is that this would cause anyone overwhelmed. Overwhelm is absolutely to be expected. So we shouldn't be feeling that we shouldn't be feeling this way, if you know what I mean. Yes. And I think once you actually accept that and realise that there's no through line, there's no like fix, instant fix for this, then we can actually address it in a slightly different way that's a little more constructive and doesn't cause as much of that tension that you mentioned. And I think that we're all starting to realise that that kind of black and white thinking, that kind of problem solution thinking is what landed us in trouble in the first place. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I talk about this in First We Make the Beast Beautiful and it's this notion of tilting. And so it was a study that looked at the most successful and happy women. And what they found is that what made women happy or the happiest as well as being successful at the same time, so to speak, was that they didn't try to manage their life according to um, sort of that didactic compartmentalising notion, but they tilted towards the stuff that mattered. So there was chaos going around them. But when, you know, instead of going, right, I've got to work X amount of hours in a day, then I've got to have an hour and a half of me time, and then I've got to have three and a half hours with the kids Mm -hmm. of quality time. Instead, they tilted to what mattered at any given time. The worst thing I can do is almost put the brakes on with my doubt that I'm not doing it right. I think that's so, that's a really important point that the doubt and the, you know, the fear of not doing it enough is often way more damaging than doing things imperfectly. Absolutely. We don't have to be doing this perfectly. Um, And that's something that I kind of say with almost everything I endeavor, you know, same with sugar. All right. You have a bad day, whatever. Mm Mm-hmm. Tomorrow's another day. Get back on track. Stop berating yourself because that'll prevent you from getting back on track. And the worst thing that we can do is remain in a state of overwhelm where we get sucked into it because overwhelm breeds inaction. 
And that's the worst thing that we can do. A bit of lightness around it really will help those of us who are at the forefront of all of this. But in terms of sort of, I guess, feeling that you're not doing enough, what, I mean, I really like Pima Chodron's um, words on this. She, I like many of her words <laughs> on many things. Um, she has a phrase, start where you are. So no matter where you are, so if you're in Georgie's case and you're doing great work in the community, she's got, she's working with children, mm-hmm. she's working with them in a creative space, she's got incredible power, more power than I would say most people on this planet, right? She's mm-hmm. right at the coal face. That's where she starts. So she starts with those kids. But if you are a, a mum with you know, four kids and you're going about your thing, that's where you start. If you are a single person and you're lonely and, you know, you find yourself sitting at cafes on your own on a Friday night while everyone's doing something more exciting, that's where you start. And I think that's a really nice adage is that it doesn't matter where you are, we can all make an impact. And this is something actually my meditation teacher, and Brooke, I think you and I have talked about my meditation teacher before. Yeah, Tim, he um, gave me this, oh, this gold line, which is going to be in my book. If you grab somebody's cuticle on their finger mm-hmm. and you pull it, the whole body will move. Now, you'd never think that pulling a cuticle could do so much. But the thing is, the smallest actions will actually drag everything forward. And we are entering and what we do, we need to enter to be able to tackle what's ahead of us is an era of understanding our connectivity. Mm -hmm. So if we continue to think of ourselves as fragmented individuals battling away with our recycling, getting annoyed with our neighbours because they don't recycle properly and they're walking around with takeaway single-use, you know, coffee cups, um, we're staying in the system that got us here, right, Mm -hmm. the fragmented individual fighting another individual mindset. But I think we all know that it's time for a more of a collective thinking and an understanding of the fact that everything is connected. It it does. It does. And I think that this idea of connection and connectivity and, and kind of removing this individualism that has pervaded everything for the last however many years, I, I think mm. that that is so, so vital because yep. – not only do we feel frustrated as you know as an individual who is doing their bit um and if you you kind of view yourself as an individual then it's really easy to be frustrated at everyone else and to kind of cast exactly. judgments at everyone else um but i i think that the idea of of coming together and and bringing us together as you know a collective humanity not that we're necessarily doing these things for ourselves and making these changes but we can't help but view it from our own well we've been sucked in the system that got us into this place is the same system that has told us that all the problems that we face are things we've got to sort out as individuals right our nature is actually to connect way more than that. So I use the example, for instance, of obesity um, and, you know, coming from the, the I Quit Sugar background, I watched this happen a number of times. But one example, for instance, is the neoliberal system, um, you know, set up this whole dynamic where the food companies, and I'm talking specifically about the soft drink companies here, they were able to plant this science out there that basically said, oh, and this is when they started to realise, oh, everybody's worked out that drinking fizzy drink is actually making people fat mm-hmm. or is a bit of an issue. So let's tackle this with some fake science. So they came out with this science that said, hey, um, yeah, look, sugary drinks can be a bit of a problem, but if you do a whole bunch of exercise, it's not a problem, <laughs> you know? And so the calories in, calories out science was invented 
Now, we now know that there is no actual science behind it. It's a furphy. But we have all bought into it, right? I'm sure many people listening to this go, oh, I thought it was true. I thought the calories in, calories out thing was actually legit. It's not. But what it did is it enabled, you know, these big companies, these multinationals to place the responsibility on the individual. It's not that we're mass producing these addictive substances that have got you all sucked in. No, it's you're not doing enough exercise. And so we are a generation that have actually been sold the Kool-Aid, if you know what I mean, or the not-so-Kool-Aid, where we actually think it's all up to us. And so we have bought into this idea that all of us, and, you know, myself, you, Georgie, we're all feeling that it's up to us to get everybody to recycle their cups and to not get single-use plastic stuff. And, oh, God, and it is tiring if we take on that mentality. And so we've kind of, excuse my language, we've got to fuck the system, Mm. right, to actually make the change that we want because otherwise we're just... We're staying in the system, you know, and and we're playing by those rules. So we've got to let go of that individualism. And what we don't realise is that it's made us punish ourselves. It's and it's stopping us by making us feel so overwhelmed that we actually go into inertia. Yeah. You know, or depression. Right. Or rage. Yeah. This eco anxiety. This this these this yes. mental health crisis that is coming out as a result of the overwhelm and the rage and the kind of the impotence that so many of us feel in the face of these huge problems is a genuine mental health issue for so many people, you know, and I think that. Especially young people. Exactly. You know, um, as a young person and this new generation that are coming through, sort of the Greta Thunberg, you know, disciples, um, you know, they, they have got the, they've got that, fire in their belly that our generation had, right? Mm -hmm. You know, when we grew up in the late 80s and early 90s, you know, where we did fight this stuff. So they are feeling it and they're very much feeling the frustration because they're wearing it on their shoulders and they're looking around at the adults and it's like, adults, where are you? This mentality is is really important. I think it's really important to preface it all by by saying we cannot continue to foist all of this on our individual shoulders because we will struggle under that weight. Um, so that's really important. But also, you know, what does that look like on the ground in a day to day sort of, yeah. um, you know, a day to day sort of basis? Well, it seems like a paradox, right? I'm saying on the one hand, don't buy into this idea that it's all our fault and it's all on our shoulders, right? Don't get too caught up in what you do as an individual. But at the same time, I'm saying, oh, and every one of our actions matters, Mm. right? What we've got to do is actually we need to come together as individuals to join a collective and as a collective we make the difference. So it's a subtlety and it sounds like a paradox, but it's about letting go of the idea that it's all our fault, all of our responsibility. It's as individuals let's unite in a collective. Right. So that's what I feel we need to be focusing on and that's where I've shifted my focus you know, I'm a, I sit here in my little office and I do things on my own and I write books and I'm a, you know, I'm a bit of a loner and I've had to really fight that for this particular cause as I've started to realise the importance of going out into the collective. So the things that work for me, I actually ran a really cool focus group. Now, it was for my book. I've run a bunch of them, 25 people in a room, some of whom were almost climate deniers, mm-hmm. all different age groups. I think we had from 21 to mid-60s, All some of them worked in banks. And I organised a group in a nice little cafe. We had wine. I, I kind of got cheese platter together and we talked about this stuff. And I tell you what, 
everybody who was there said it was one of the best nights they've had, right? So it was bringing people together. Now, all of us can do that. Start where you are. Now, you might be a member of a preschool group, a play group. You may be in charge of the social committee at your office. I don't know. But everybody has an opportunity to bring people together like a book club. But make it a big issues club mm-hmm. and it can just be a one-off see how it goes I don't believe in biting off more than you can chew I believe in a suck it and see you know mm. see see how it pans out it might be a failure who cares you don't you know everyone will move on and forget about it so if you've got some people who are not so open to it but are curious and I had a few people in that room who were along those lines and they were curious the other thing, I'll just give an example of something that happened recently with the um, school climate strikes. I had a friend, she's got two kids, um, she's a stay-at-home mum and she felt powerless. Mm. She just felt nothing I do makes a difference. Mm-hmm. I try to recycle. The other people in my apartment block don't even care. My friends don't care. What am I meant to do? Anyway, she said, look, there's a bunch of us who want to go to the strike from the kids' school. And she said, oh, you know, but they're all saying they're not going to go because it's too hard to get there. And she said, maybe I should organise a minibus or something. I said, yes. And she said, well, well, how would I do it? And I said, well, just book it, you know, ring a company, see what can happen. And she sort of touched base with me. Should I put up an Eventbrite? Yes, that'll work. And off she went and did it. The minibus grew to a coach and then grew to two coaches. So she ended up taking 120 people from the school to the climate strike, some of whom would never have gone without it. So she did this small thing, which was just to book a minibus to solve a problem. She started where she was and it expanded into something that captured people's imagination. And I think speaking of the strikes, getting people to those big collective uh, opportunities is so super powerful. Yes. Every single person I spoke to who went to those strikes and I you know, I was rabid, like I was walking around the neighbourhood just going, are you going? Are you going? Why not? You know, um, I actually found that quite a number of people went and I said to them, oh, did you? And they said, yes, because you told me to. <laughs> um, but they said it was one of their, the best days they've had with their kids. Yeah. They said, oh, my God, my mind was blown. It had such a great atmosphere. So don't underestimate those opportunities. And Extinction Rebellion's doing some pretty amazing stuff out there and you may or may not disagree with, all of the stuff that they're doing, but there's so much activity and it's ramping up. And um, we as humans, we're crying out to see each other in these spaces. So there are a couple of things that I do to take it bigger than my own individual actions. I love the, I mean, everything you just explained, everything you just described had at its core the connectivity that you spoke about earlier. You know, it Mm -hmm. is all about joining together with other people, like-minded people, even people who have partly like-minded values. Yeah. You know, I, we, we, I think we, we're all kind of afraid of connecting and then being disappointed by someone, you know, because we're not exactly yeah. clones yep. of each other. And I think it's really important to understand that we're all come at this from our own place, from our own perspective, and that that's okay. You know, like you would have experienced with that room full of people, you can have exactly. a complete diversity of perspectives and still have constructive conversations. I think that's the most powerful aspect of it all is that and from my personal experience having done this um, in all kinds of forums around the world, 
um, including when I've been traveling, you know, I end up sitting down with a bunch of waiters from a cafe where I've noticed they've been drinking out of a plastic bottle and I give one of them a lecture. And, I, and I've perfected the art of giving a lecture <laughs> I, um, because I haven't made anyone angry yet. I've actually enrolled. I think I've got a pretty good strike, strike rate. Um, but I do use it as a forum for practicing yep. um, compassion. Um, some people use, you know, President Trump's tweets mm. as a practice for compassion. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not quite that brave. But um, what I've found is that even the people who are resistant, even um, people who are deniers, do you know, it, I've been surprised every time by how common we all are. We have a commonality yeah. and we all have a desire to connect and understand this stuff better. So if anyone's listening out there going, oh, God, I'm a bit scared to sort of broach this in my community, what are people going to Everybody's crying out, at least have an opportunity to talk about it in a really kind, mindful, productive yes. way. Everything feels very divided at the moment. If you go off the like the internet, if you treat the internet like life, everyone is divided down political lines, down you know various lines, and it feels like every conversation that we have is going to be either a with us or against us kind of end result. Yes, that's a really good point. You know, and yeah. I don't I don't think that that's the case. I've had numerous conversations with people in my family and people in my social spheres about this stuff, and yeah, it can be awkward. I just think that being open and being kind and being compassionate yeah. and being non-judgmental. Your point I think is really important, this notion if you go by what's happening on the internet, you could get very easily disillusioned yeah. and that is something that I think particularly um, particularly for women with children, often their contact with the outside world comes through, you know, mm. through Facebook when the kids are, you know, eating their afternoon tea or whatever it might be. If you do go by the internet, it is very combative. It's very uh, us versus them. In real life, we're not like no, that. We're not. We're, 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 we want to be kind and we rise to our better selves. We are able to reduce to our small selves when we're on the internet. And if you stay in that world, it's um, highly problematic because you get a view of the world which is depressing and disillusioning and and overwhelming. And we cannot afford to stay in this overwhelmed space. And if there's one thing I can say to Georgie and anyone else is, and especially if you're a bit of an A-type or you're ambitious or you've got that fire in your belly as Georgie obviously has, is that it's almost your mission not to be sucked into the overwhelm. Yes. Because that is the most dangerous thing that can happen to us right now. And, you know, and some of the other things that I do, just to go back to some more practicalities because I tend to sweep off into the ephemeral, <laughs> is um, is surround yourselves with people who are your tribe. And especially for someone like Georgie who's, who's somewhat of a prophet, no doubt, in her community, right? Mm-hmm. Prophets have always been out on the leading edge. It can be very lonely. It can You're out there doing your own thing. You're ridiculed. The rest of the world hasn't caught up. Um, but that has been the role of prophets throughout history. And prophets can exist in all kinds of spaces. Um, and it's often in hindsight that we realise, oh, Martin Luther King was in fact right. Oh, yes. Jesus actually had something to say, yeah. you know. Um, and so what prophets need to do in the meantime is to actually go and find other prophets. How do you, I mean, and how do you encourage people to do that? If you're, if you're an introvert, if you're someone who doesn't feel like they've got anyone like-minded in their physical community, I mean, what, what can that look like? I'm going to um, 
go against my own words here, the internet on the flip side can actually be quite good. <laughs> I agree. So if you're, if you're on Instagram or if you're on something, you will find like-minded people, people who chime in. And, I mean, it's, it has saved me. Right. Mm-hmm. So Instagram in particular, which I find kinder than the other forums, yeah. um, when I've been trolled or I've been given a hard time or even when I'm just feeling really overwhelmed, for some reason the community who follow me pick up on it and they know it and it's just the most generous, beautiful aspect of human nature. I'm always just stunned by it. People reach out to me and go, I'm hearing you. You're not on your own. Now, I've reached out to some of those people. Like, so I go to this kind of community acupuncturist. You know, they set up a room and it's 25 bucks and I go off there about once every two weeks. And it's just down the road and it's great. I force myself to go. It's part of my, you know, hashtag self-care routine. Yeah. Um, and, but she actually, she knows what I get up to and how worked up I get about it. And she said, she said, my friends and I, we had a chat and we all want to support you. If there's anything we can do to help you. And I said, oh, well, I'd just love to sit down and have a glass of wine with you guys. Like, let's just get together. And she said, well, we, we've, there's this really cool skater who teaches our kids to skate and he's trying to do this and he's getting blah, blah, blah. We could get a group together. And if you start just being a little bit brave yeah. and reaching out to some of these people, you'll find that they are also crying out to have that connection with like-minded profits and also people who aren't necessarily profits like you know there's people who they're just as important they're the people that support the profits you know they're the people that go we hear you and that's a role so you don't have to be the person at the leading edge and you don't have to be at the leading edge all the time right because um not all profits were already always out there all the time they backed off for a while and let other people step through for the majority of people who are having to just get on with their lives, that's where you can step in. You you like the photos or you do a thumbs up on Facebook. It doesn't have to be more complicated than that. And this is a factoid that a lot of people really love to hear. Um, a study done of every peaceful protest from 1904, I think, all the way through to, 19, to, to 2017. And what she found, this scientist found, where 3.5% of the population turned up to strike the protest, the city, and whatever it was, the change that they were after was enacted. So 3.5% is not a huge amount, um, but it always gets results. Now, that is really encouraging, I think, for people because they suddenly go, oh, I can make a difference. And Mm -hmm. so just sort of parlaying it back to that notion of the profits and what we can all do. Sarah, thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. Who is that? Hi, podcast.